0: Hello and welcome to What the Lux with me, Fred Moore and me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matterform,
1: a design consultancy specialising in brand, digital experience and content. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury.
0: Alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and services. Tom Goodwin is a speaker, author, friend, and perhaps most importantly, a provocateur who stands against the hype. I love his commentary. If you don't follow him, please do. If you haven't read his book, Digital Darwinism, it's a great read. I recommend you buy it. Tom, it's great to have you on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to our discussion.
1: Me too. It should be good, Anand. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Tom, I know that there is no discussion guide for this conversation, and I haven't really prepared anything other than one question which is, what do you overspend on? This is, after all, a podcast about luxury, notionally.
1: I'm sort of oddly boring and rational, but there are two areas where I go nuts. One is sort of luggage. Uh, For some reason, I I absolutely love luggage. And I don't mean sort of bags so much as suitcases. Sort of anything that's sort of metal and shiny and looks sort of German or Swiss, um, I go crazy for. And also furniture. I've got sort of wildly expensive sofas and sort of beautiful sort of handcrafted walnut side tables. And I get really stuck into those things. Like, uh, it, it's sort of weird. In my mind, I almost have sort of different bank accounts, and there are some things that I can sort of justify spending money on. You know, furniture is one of those things that just gives me an enormous sense of joy.
0: What is it that gives you the joy?
1: I mean, all, all sort of luxury is really the sort of tales that we, that, that we tell ourselves. I think um, anything that has sort of provenance behind it, anything that has a real sense of craft... You know, maybe there's a sense of sort of pretentiousness about it, actually, where I quite like being someone that, you know, if people asked me about something, I, I could talk to them about how it was made. Um, but I think it, it, it's quite different to a lot of luxury, which is a bit more about fashion. Like these things are quite sort of internal things. These are all about me talking to myself and me demonstrating to myself that, you know, I've, I've got things worth collecting. You know, as we kind of are generally speaking, moving towards an age of abundance... I take real pride in, in owning things that are smaller in number, um, but I really cherish, and I think anything that's got a bit of a story, anything that sort of involves treating people quite well in the in the manufacturing of them, anything that lasts a long time, anything that uh, helps you kind of recant tales of where you've seen things or bought things, you know, these things sort of turn into sort of miniature sort of legacy collections somehow, you know, a bit like the sort of great explorers of the past, you know, so it, it may just be that I bought something from Craigslist or Gumtree or something, but, you know, that's my equivalent of a, of a sort of world tour, you know, from the 1800s.
0: It's the soul of the thing and how you interpret it in your personal context that allows you to express yourself, I guess, to some to some extent.
1: Soul is the key word, actually. I made a kind of pact, which I I, I broke many times. But uh, I remember at the end of university, just thinking to myself, I'm never going to go to an Ikea again. I'm never going to buy like a lac table, uh, which is one of, you know, 100 million made every year. I'm never going to buy something that I have to sort of assemble myself. You know, I want there to be a soul to it. I want there to be a meaning. I want every time I look at it to sort of get a sense of joy. And these things sound a bit over the top, but they, they are they are pretty true. And I think um, I'm, I'm always surprised at how few people see the world this way. Even just economically, actually, makes a lot of sense. I, um, it's, it's quite a long story, but for some reason, I was given a pair of very expensive shoes by Ben Affleck about 15 years ago. Um, so sort of John Lobb shoes. And I've probably worn them, you know, 2,000 times, Had them resold maybe four or five times. And they still look sort of brand new and they look fashionable. And I just love the idea of sort of having things that that have meaning to them.
0: Do you think people, um, it's a bit of a fallacy, the durability of a luxury product, people convince themselves that they're spending more because it will last longer, but that's not really what it's all about?
1: It's always interesting to know the degree to which we are lying to ourselves. I think, you know, generally speaking, it's our heart that's always making decisions and it's always our brain that's sort of post-rationalizing them. You know, sort of brain acts as this kind of the press department almost of, of our own internal decision making. You know, there's, there's a bit of a truth. I mean, you know, in, in some ways, you know, it's human nature to, to use luxury items and to use items that we own and, and buy as a way to to demonstrate to others who we are, you know, both in terms of status, but also in terms of the tribes that we belong to. And to some extent, these decisions are always quite irrational because human nature is irrational and signaling is quite irrational. But in a weird way, the more you go back from that, the more you realize these things are quite rational in themselves because that's that's what it is to be human. So I I, I find it very interesting, you know, and um, I, I enjoy being quirky in this way. Like As I said before, because quite a lot of my decisions with money are quite practical, irrational, and they're often sort of feeling more like investments. It's quite nice just to go nuts in one or two little areas.
0: A point there that I... Couldn't agree more with the lies we tell ourselves. The reasons that we believe something is valuable or more valuable than something else is often driven by a very different part of our heart than we allow ourselves to believe. I was reading an article in the New York Times the other day about the rise of super fakes. You can't tell the difference between a fake Chanel handbag or a fake Ramoa suitcase and. Yeah, it really got me thinking about what is the difference between a fake Ramoa suitcase or a fake Chanel handbag that costs $500 or £500 versus, you know, a genuine article. And it really is the provenance and the soul and the story. And in a way, like the aggregate of blood, sweat and tears and design, D that goes into that thing that emerges you know, out of the other end.
1: It, I, I find that whole kind of fake thing very interesting because, you know, philosophically, if, a suitcase that is looking like giramova is made with almost the same care and attention um, and engineering prowess as the original. Like it, like if those items become identical, um, at what point do they effectively have the same meaning? And it's quite a sort of weird sort of philosophical experiment really. Like does, does it matter because the people paying it were using the same level of skill but they weren't being paid enough? If they're identical but they were made in different factories, does that matter? I, 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 for some reason, because I'm very curious about human nature, I found the whole fake movement very interesting. I've spent a lot of time in, in Istanbul going to these stores where they take you up to different levels and into other stores. And then they've got a cousin that sort of whisks you away somewhere else. And it kind of feels more exciting than buying, you know, illegal drugs or something. And I've ended up sort of owning one or two items because I kind of enjoyed the story of, of procuring them. Um, and I look at these things as, as sort of bits of fun in a way they, they all sort of bring back memories of, of dodgy negotiations. And I've been to China. I've been to um, Guangzhou where they have the kind of original fake markets where they have shopping malls with different um, levels. And the higher you go in the shopping markets, um, the more quality the fakes become to a point where, you know, you can almost spend $2,000 on an item that if it was real was, was, would be $4,000. And for some reason, and I'm I'm always intrigued by luxury brands and how much they must know about this world, you know, maybe, maybe they let these markets persist because they create even more myth Mm -hmm. and they create even more sort of stories about how people come to own these items.
0: I guess fakes are as pertinent in the world of physical products as they have become in the realm of music and art and what AI can do to drive similar outcomes through the lens of an artist in question that i find particularly fascinating at the moment what does that mean for ip what does that mean for the journey that an artist has perhaps taken to get to the point where they express themselves through song or through you know visual design or artistry what's your view on art produced by ai through the lens of someone's specific style
1: Yeah, for some reason, I end up feeling quite miserable and curmudgeonly and maybe sort of slightly elitist almost. But I kind of, I feel like the whole point in this stuff is it's wasteful and inefficient and human. You know, I feel like you need to sort of know that there's been training and skill and exploration and experimentation and, you know, blood and sweat and tears and anguish. You know, I kind of... I kind of need to know that something was quite hard um, and that something involved emotion in order to sort of feel something from it. Maybe this is a degree of distaste that I have for people who sort of love technology to the extent where they think it can do everything. But every time I see something that's sort of AI generated, I, I can be somewhat impressed by it. But the idea that this carries significance in terms of sort of soul or merit um, I just can't really sort of get behind, um, and I, I, you know, I've become oddly sort of snobby about it. Because obviously, you know, for a long time, art and tools were very connected, you know, like no one would look at photography now and think, you know, well, that's not that good because the person can't even draw that well. You know, we, we recognize there's a skill to photography. We recognize that the skill is Knowing what to point it at, we recognize the skill in using the settings. You know, we know that um, correction is used and filters are used and, and techniques are used to improve that image. You know, so philosophically, it's not a long way from that to typing these things into computers and, and getting computers to execute our commands. Um, but for some reason, it feels very different to me and it feels, um, it feels sort of non-proper and it feels like it's sort of missing the point. But I, I, I'm, I'm very open to the idea that I'm wrong on this and, and maybe this is just um, a sign that is early and perhaps the proponents of this stuff um, uh, are, are people that, you know, that just sort of come from a different background. Um, I always found the area of video art and digital art very interesting. Um, and I spent quite a lot of time looking into it and I even made a TV show about it. And what sort of struck me is that for almost the entire duration of, of digital art, the, the worlds have been very separate. There's been the sort of technology people that would use this to make um, computer generated images and NFTs and nonsense like that. And then there'd be the sort of quote unquote real artists who never really did much stuff with it. They never really got that excited about the idea of, you know, what does moving art mean? What does... Um, what do generative algorithms mean. And I think quite often these worlds become um, very separate because of sort of chasms between them that may just come down to tribalism and snobbery and things like that.
0: To challenge a point within that response, actually, I guess what you're suggesting is that for art or for any design-led product to be appreciated, you have to understand its context. And does that context, you know, have to play a part in the the visceral reaction that you have to it? Because if your visceral reaction to something that perhaps is generatively uh, designed is similar to that of another product that is the outcome of blood, sweat and tears, what does that mean?
1: I mean, that's a much better question than, than any of the answers that I gave before. You know, this idea of, um, of needing to understand the context is is, is key, you know. So um, that one question makes me sort of take a step back and need to think a bit more. I I think I think so much of this is about the level of understanding that people have, and I think um, you know I'm I'm sort of exploring this as I'm answering this question. You know, maybe I'm happy with the photographer um, taking art, uh, sorry, taking pictures and sort of manipulating them because they have a sort of an understanding of the craft and they kind of know how cameras work, Um, and the sort of context for how they present their work is based on that understanding and that rigor and that skill. Whereas so much AI stuff seems to be a sort of black box. Um, and we can talk about this more, but you know, no one really understands quite how these algorithms are working. Uh, and often we're getting better results than we ever expected to, because this stuff seems to be operating in a different way to that that we thought it was.
0: One of the things that really worries me in life at the moment is just lack of context to everything. And I I, I read today in the news this morning that Google have now released a beta feature in Chrome that will use AI to summarize key points in long-form content. And it it just did get me thinking, is this the sort of death of long-form? Has our attention really been disseminated to the point where we're not prepared to acknowledge anything more than the headlines that drive our dopamine. But do you think it's a good thing that we are making the world more bite-sized? Do you think that there is an upside to us being able to understand more, more quickly?
1: I think we need to understand there are many different things going on when we talk about something like Google using algorithms to make the news more bite-sized. There are lots of different things. One, the the act of making complex information simple is is somewhat problematic because many things in life are not simple you know if you wanted to understand the history of the middle east you know at some point when you condense it to less than a hundred thousand words you probably start to miss out on some key bits of history that provide more context but the acts of making things shorter isn't the problem per se the real problem becomes um about three different things um one is who is it that's deciding what matters um And for a long time, that was a very important job done by humans with a lot of experience, and a lot of empathy. Um, The moment that becomes done by algorithm is we're already sort of outsourcing that critical job to people who perhaps don't really understand the world. Um, And they're choosing things that are more exciting or more likely to get a click rather than the things that are actually important. The, The second thing is that what tends to happen at the same time as this is the news that performs better. Um, is celebrated, and then over time the algorithms become optimized to make sure that what is created is somewhat um, shareable. And by definition, those things normally become more fearful or more salacious or more outrageous or perhaps more funny or more cute. So what we tend to consume is automatically distorted in a way to give us sort of carnal emotion, which removes our ability to have any sort of calmness. And then humans themselves act as their own worst enemies where they tend to share things that become more and more evil or more and more anxiety ridden. So the the sort of process itself of making the world's news more digestible is not in any way a problem, but the entire ecosystem and environment that that leads to is extremely dangerous. And this is something I think about all the time. You know, the moment I'm on a rather sort of extended holiday and I haven't really been consuming any news whatsoever, um, and when you remove yourself from news and you occasionally check Twitter or you occasionally check TV news, um, it's really hard to not come to the conclusion that this is all stuff that distorts perspective and it distorts context and it distorts what matters. And I don't think, you know, this is a sign of conspiracy or evil. I, I just think we've got to a place where it's actually very hard to understand what's going on in the world with any sense of calmness. And I think that's a really big problem. Even if you take something like the weather this year, and it's quite difficult to talk about these things actually, but you know, is the weather this year completely crazy like never before? Is it quite similar? Is it somewhat between the two? Because all you would know if you read a lot of news is that things are bananas, but you end up in a situation where you have quite a lot of doubts about these things. You know, Is that real? And why are things so different this year to last year? Why is it happening over a one-year period? You know, to what degree is this in the public good to get everyone very anxious about this stuff and to feel quite sort of depressed? These are all very good questions that I don't really have answers to.
0: I mean, over COVID, I became obsessed with the American news because it was so wonderfully sensationalist. It was better than fiction. Let's actually talk about the American and European thing, actually, for a moment. I think we pretend luxury is not about status, but, but it is status, because we're all trying to find our place in this world. And I don't think status necessarily needs to be a bad thing. But it, it's just fundamental to, to how we define ourselves. You're English, and have now living in America, what, what are the differences that you've seen in how Americans and Europeans think about status and how open they are about status and its importance in society?
1: I mean, status is a very different thing in America because broadly speaking, and I don't don't think this is sort of particularly new or insightful, um, but status is very much linked with the wealth, whereas I think status in much of Europe is linked to sort of heritage. Um, I, I sort of quite naturally have found myself quite dismissive of the idea of luxury for status. Um, and I get quite sort of, um, you know, I, I feel like look, a sort of status that you buy is quite distasteful somehow. Um, I remember years ago I was in Las Vegas with a, a very sort of long sort of long ago girlfriend and uh, we couldn't get into some sort of nightclub. And then she ended up suggesting that I sort of, you know, gave the bouncer like $100 or something. And it sort of appalled me, you know, because this idea that somehow you could sort of use money to get into something I found completely distasteful and sort of crass. Um, and then we had a big sort of discussion stroke argument about it where I was getting on my moral high ground about how awful it was that money would buy you access. And then she quite simply said, well, actually, if you're trying to get into a nightclub in London, it's much more about who you know and where you went to school and you know how you talk and what your name is. And, you know, status comes from class and background and connections. Um, and, you know, why should I feel better about that? Why should I be sort of smug that it's not about money? Because actually, you know, and at least in America, there's a, a, a slight sense of egalitarianism about it. Because if you decide to work really hard or save your money or prioritize in different ways, then actually you can get access to the same you know, expensive nightclub that other people can. So I realized that the sort of main currency of, of status in, in America was money. And in most of Europe, you realize it goes back a long time. And, you know, all you have to do is go on a little tour of most European countries and you realize there was a whole, you know, system of royal palaces and, you know, people kind of meeting the royalty of each other's family and selective breeding. And and you realize quite how 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 sort of different our countries are because, you know, in some ways having a really dusty old car in Paris um, is almost a kind of sign that you've probably spent your money on art and furniture, which is considered to be a sort of more sophisticated way to spend money you know where i spent most of my life in miami where you know money is to be used as a very external demonstration of of, of wealth and um, and therefore the thing needs to be worn or driven and this idea that you'd have expensive furniture would would seem remarkably pointless and illogical in miami because you know by the time someone sees it you've already done what you need to do so i think i think that's the sort of main 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 sort of gap
0: we do quite a lot of work in in neom and we're specifically working on the line at the moment which is a vertical living concept 300 kilometer long blade that cuts through the desert that's twice as high as the shard that promises a a future where most of the things we do on a day-to-day basis are automated and you know in some some respects forces you to rethink what what respite means what connections uh, what, what, what do you do with your day when you don't spend, you know, you know, an hour in the car getting to work, we, we don't seek solutions to day-to-day problems that exist. We look in all the wrong places to innovate and you then look at something like Neon and some of the things that are being built there where there isn't an existing infrastructure and you actually have the ability in hindsight, to look at what has worked and how we use technology and how we embed it in our day to day lives and really reimagine from ground zero what life means when we apply the best things we've learned to, to our day to our day. And where does that leave you? How, do we run the risk of optimizing the joy out of life? Yeah, the,
1: the opportunity that we have in the world right now to create new future lives is extraordinary. You know, we, we've only ever really known sort of pre-car cities and sort of post-car cities. And I think this is an incredible opportunity that we have. And maybe climate change can be a good catalyst for this as well, where we can create what, what cities should be like in the digital age, you know. And that means places where we have um, a mixture of transport solutions. The The best question I ever routinely ask is what would this look like if we were to build it today? You know, what, what if we didn't have a, a memory of what a bank should look like? What if we didn't know what a school system should look like? Um, because you realize so many times when we come to solutions, we're basically taking the same parameters and the same shared assumptions from the past. And it's only really the process of challenging those assumptions when you get to a much more interesting answer. You know, so we, we kind of assume that education should be based on on learning a curriculum, which is somewhat similar to the past. You know, whereas actually, if you were to prepare kids for an abundant future now, you probably wouldn't be teaching them the same things. You'd probably be focusing on values or on attitudes or on sort of nurturing curiosity to to teach yourself. Um, If you were to think about tests, we probably wouldn't have all these tests that people would pass. We'd probably find another way to to measure progress. We'd probably be better preparing kids for future careers. And I don't mean teaching them to code. I mean, teaching them to be imaginative and, and human. And I think these things are experiments in in challenging assumptions and in being more ambitious. And focusing on what it is to be human. Because, you know, maybe it's quite good for us to undo the dishwasher. You know, for me, chores are almost my meditation. You know, I'm an absolutely lousy meditator. But I quite like um, cleaning the house because it gives me a sense of progress and control. (laughs) Um, But all these things um, are different for other people. So I, I think the... The idea that we have this moment in time where we get to build the lives that we, we shouldn't do, I think is an extraordinarily sort of powerful idea.
0: It feels like tech is just removing all friction from our life. And I think we crave a level of sort of healthy friction of engagement. You know, I spent you know a, a good portion of the day going and buying vinyl because I really enjoy putting a record on at the end of a day and listening to the narrative. And I like the soul of the thing. Do you you think we're going to see a trend in in a world where half of what we have to do to survive is so automated and easy and friction-free that we crave this like slower, more thoughtful kind of analog pastimes? What I'm really trying to get at is do you think we'll see a trend towards slowing down?
1: There's a long history of looking at trends and almost every trend is a sort of reaction to the period before, you know, arts and crafts is a kind of You know, obvious example is the sort of reaction against um, mechanization and the industrial age. You know, you can look at the sort of international style of architecture and then movements away from that with Art Nouveau and stuff like that. Um, I think, you know, broadly speaking, it's quite easy to have a fairly um, poor idea of what's going on in the world because our coverage of trends tends to be driven by actually incredibly small sample sizes. So it's absolutely the case that vinyl records are tripling in you know the numbers that people buy every year. But if you still look at it and you were to calculate how many hours of music are listened to every single year, you'd probably find out that it was like zero point zero zero one percent of hours that was consumed by vinyl. I, I think there is a tendency for people who write for the Guardian or the New York Times or the Washington Post to. Write stories based on something that they saw once in Williamsburg. And then, you know, three of their best friends, Um, and then they do a tweet saying, Hey, you know, I'm writing a piece about how, you know, everyone's making uh, French style potatoes this week. Does anyone know anyone? Um, And then miraculously, they're able to sort of find seven other people who've fallen in love with sort of Dauphiné's potatoes Is that week, and it becomes a trend. Um, So I think all of these things are sort of worth looking at from a true numbers perspective. I I think in a way, more broadly, um, there are some really sort of fascinating things here. You know, in some ways, luxury and technology have a really uneasy relationship. You know, the most sort of luxurious experiences are quite sort of timeless. They're sort of based around heritage and humanity, about, you know, physical labor, about craft. You know, so you end up thinking, well, you know, could a really amazing electric vehicle really be um, luxurious in the same way? Is a really luxurious hotel one that could use AI, you know, to predict when you're going to arrive and then when you turn up into the driveway, some sort of butler robot drives your car away and then the doors open automatically and you're checked in with your face and then your fingerprint opens the door and you don't ever talk to anyone? Is that luxury? And I think what you realise is these things are very contextual. You know, sometimes luxury is about touch points disappearing. Sometimes it's about even more touch points. You know, in some ways, the most luxurious e-commerce experience would be that you'd open up packaging and it'd have a handwritten note and it might have a sort of lovely poem that someone had thought about.
0: I think there are lots of forgotten touch points or, or what's the storyboard that you take your customers through and how can you ensure that it feels connected and cohesive and delightful? Um, rather than just mono-focusing on marketing the product, which creates no emotional connection and results in a sort of level of buyer's remorse. No, exactly. I
1: think a number of of companies have got this study wrong. I think, um, you know, Burberry went through that whole thing where they had iPads in stores designed to sort of recognize people and then serve people better. But then you kind of realize that actually in a way... What, what people love is the idea that a human remembers who they are rather than that because an iPad sort of told you an assistant who you are. So th- these things become very interesting are very different for different people. You know, I think younger people consuming luxury probably has a very different sense of what service is compared with older people. Um, I think people in different countries have a very different feeling about what service is. Um, and like I said before, I think different contexts. You know, sometimes you want a hotel to spend, you know, 10 minutes showing you how everything in the hotel room works. Uh, You know, perhaps on your honeymoon, that's not what you want at that moment. And perhaps if you're staying for, you know, five uh, hours in a hotel near the airport, you don't want that. These, These things are very specific and they're very mood based. You know, I think a lot of these things are about the nuance rather than the
0: headlines. I'm quite cynical about, well, frankly, most things. But if you pay $100 for a tick on the side of your shoe and $5 to keep your feet warm. Is it ridiculous that you would pay that $100 for like a tick in the metaverse?
1: I mean, let me be clear. I think the metaverse is an absolute joke. Um, I think it's a complete waste of time. I think everything that's ever been written about it um, is fairly pointless. I also think it's something that doesn't really have a definition. Um, you know, the definition of the metaverse is something that, you know, feels like this sort of ethereal idea that's in everyone's heads and everyone interprets it in a different way. I think focusing on it more like a sort of virtual world or like a sort of a digital persona, I think is probably is more sort of helpful for conversations like this. And then you realize, again, I'm going to sound quite snobby, but I think the whole point of status is about who you're conveying those messages to. And I think status in the real world works quite well um, because generally speaking, people in the real world hang around people that they care about what they think about you. You know, if you're sort of going to, uh, I know, the surf lodge in the Hamptons or something, you're probably around a cohort of people that you're trying to signal to. You know, generally speaking, most people in the normal world who we might sort of talk to and know about are probably not going to be people that spend time in virtual platforms because probably we have quite a nice life. So I think there was always a sort of an intrinsic um, flaw with the metaverse that what would end up happening is lots of people not like us um, who perhaps don't use the same sort of social cues, would end up broadcasting to other people not like us. And to some extent, that would create a different sort of tribe of, of status, you know, sort of the tribe of high scores, the tribe of, of sort of digitally connected people. But it was always quite difficult for me to sort of imagine why anyone would really care that much.
0: Perhaps, as I think you cited before, a lot of it comes down to consultants creating a need for change by, by fear mongering.
1: Yes. You know, if, if, if an extraordinary company does something, then people use that as a case study to show that other companies can do it. You know, if you ask a, a consultant to talk about purpose, they'll talk about how successful Patagonia's been. You know, if you ask companies to talk about NFTs, someone will talk about how successful Nike's been or Tiffany's been.
0: You sort of started in comms, didn't you? And your journey is taking you from comms to sort of core business model change and CX. Is that right?
1: The thing about career journeys is it's very easy to sort of post-rationalize them so they seem quite logical. Um, You know, I kind of started there in architecture um, and then ended up working sort of more in strategy for advertising agencies after doing a few sales roles. Um, So yeah, my my, my sort of focus has always been on people um, and how they behave um, and then how technology changes that. Um, So even when I was working in sort of marketing, I was working on brands like Nokia, you know, thinking about what electronics would do to our lives and how that would change the way that we would live them. Um, So it's not been quite a sort of radical change as it might seem.
0: Do do you think that actually so many of the products we buy are so like globally available and homogenous? Like we all carry the same iPhones. We all select one of 10 brands of car that all frankly look the same and have CarPlay in them. You know do do you think that we are expressing ourselves through our catch up because we' we're looking for increasingly nuanced ways to figure out who we are and what that means and and what the products that we buy say about us?
1: I think um it's a very difficult thing to generalize on, but I think as a as a general principle, I think um branding is this really weird um paradox where people don't care about brands at all in most of what they do or say. But they need to know a tiny, tiny, tiny thing about that brand. So again, luxury is a little bit different, but you know, most people don't really care about what kind of car tire brand they have. Most people don't really care about the the brand of cornflakes in the morning. They don't necessarily care about the brand of um, oil that they use to lubricate their, their car, but they still need to know a tiny bit. So I might not care about my car brand, but I still need to know that Continental is quite a big company that's probably not me tires i might not care about my supermarket chain that much but then you go to a foreign country and you don't know the supermarket chains and you realize you actually do because you don't have a shorthand to to know that what you're doing isn't crazy and i think Mm. most people probably have space for about 50 brands in their life that they care a little bit about um and that number will change uh, and the categories will change so some people may have a you know uh, a brompton bike and their their branded bike may be very important to them um, other people may care a lot about their suitcase brand uh, like us like other people may care a lot about um, the food that they have on their their shelves you know because they're sort of proud to be artisanal um, but I think we 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 focus all the time on the places that people really care about because that's our job you know for, for every person that's buying a light bulb you know some people are reading all about Philips Hue and they're finding out about sort of how it all works and where it's made and the extended warranty that it has and the app that it uses. But, But most people are buying light bulbs on the basis that it's just a light bulb and they don't really care. So the skill in life really is finding the people that care about our brands, what they care about, and then the moment in time they may be receptive to that.
0: I guess with growth comes more brands and less loyalty. And, you know, it's harder, I think, if you're a business to to maintain a level of relevancy and to to keep a place in people's hearts and in their lives. What do you think makes people loyal to brands?
1: I think there are a few things in marketing that are more misunderstood than loyalty. Um, you know, most people aren't loyal to brands. Most, most people are just living their lives. Um, most people are lazy. Most people are reducing the number of decisions that they have to make. Uh, Most people are just doing what's easiest. Um, So almost every single case of brand loyalty in in the bigger world isn't really loyalty. It's sort of familiarity. Um, Again, that that changes slightly in an area like luxury, you know, because in, in luxury, almost by definition, there is a permission for brands to be a bigger part of our life. And this, these are often sort of high involvement categories, and people are finding particular parts of their sort of repertoire um, to care about and to sort of extract meaning from. But I still feel like loyalty is probably the wrong type of feeling to apply to it. You know, loyalty is a very human thing. I think I, you know, I, I could be loyal to the store owner who sells me a Remover suitcase, but I don't think I could be loyal to Remover itself. I think I could be loyal to the BA captain that, you know, flew me, you know, from the difficult situation I I once faced. But I don't think I could be loyal to the airline. I think we would be smarter if we use slightly more um, specific words. You know, sometimes it's brand familiarity. Sometimes it's a better product. um, Sometimes it's a whole um, assortment of items that work well with each other. You know, sometimes we're buying matching luggage more than we're buying into the brand itself.
0: I think that's very fair. We we, we always ask our guests uh, the same four questions, the fir- first of which is a bit of a mission to complain, I think. Um, <laughs> what most irritates you about, about, about your industry?
1: What irritates me these days is a lack of ambition. I think we have all this technology and things are changing a little bit quickly. Um, and I wish that we would get excited about what it means rather than paralyzed by all the choices it offers. Yeah, I think we should use technology to do things better rather than more efficiently. You know, so let's not hide behind technology to automate customer service. Let's allow people to serve themselves but also provide amazing human-driven customer
0: service. I was connected to that. What concerns you about the world that we're leaving to the next generation?
1: What concerns... It, probably the media environment the most. I think um, there, there's no way at looking at data In any high-level way, uh, there's no way of aggregating it in such a way that we cannot come to the conclusion that this is the best time there's ever been to be alive. Almost every single metric is getting better. And I get really bothered when I see a sort of pervasive sense of hopelessness and fear about the future and guilt, when actually we should be walking around every day going, I can't believe how lucky I am to be alive today but there are things that we can do to
0: improve it. If you had to give up your job tomorrow, what would you do?
1: Uh, I'd probably be a builder. You know, uh, at some points I, I wanted to say architect, but I think I actually really like making things with my hands. So, um, you know, I, I don't mean this is the sort of most likely scenario, um, you know, because I probably would become an architect or something. But um, I, I love the idea of, of sort of forging shelters and items, you know, from my own hands on a beach in Indonesia or something like that.
0: And the last question, what is the most exciting thing for you, Tom, in the next five years?
1: Everything. You know, technology is making lots of things better. Um, I'm feeling like I am able to read more interesting things all the time. I'm able to get access to interesting people's perspectives. I'm able to meet interesting people. So kind of everything as a package is very exciting. Generally speaking, one of the most underestimated things about uh, social media is your ability to meet with people who are really interesting. And I think one of the greatest privileges I have, you know, thanks to being quite active on places like LinkedIn, is I get to meet people who are fascinating. Um, you know, I'm supposed to be traveling to Israel quite soon. And just to know that you can go on LinkedIn and find two or three people who are probably very interesting and, you know, set up a cup of coffee with them. It's an enormous opportunity that we all have to learn. And it's something that I think most people don't take advantage of.
0: Well, that's a really optimistic note to end on. Tom, yeah. thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating.
1: My pleasure. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matraform and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux.
0: Or if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy and design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at and chat to one of our consultants.